is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's episode features legendary paddler Nigel Foster, and Nigel talks with us about his epic adventure paddling Baffin Island through the Hudson Strait toward the Labrador coast. It's a trip that took 23 years to complete, so I'm really glad you're here to hear about it. Enjoy today's episode with Nigel Foster. Welcome, Nigel. Thank you for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hello, John. It's nice to be here. I appreciate you taking the time. So, Nigel, tell us a little bit about you and your history as an adventurer and a paddler. Well, I started kayaking on the south coast of England. I lived in Brighton, and that's a seaside town with water quite available. I started kayaking with my brother in the Scouts. We did some trips camping on local rivers from about the age of 14, and I got hooked on it to the point where I started trying different types of kayaks and uh, venturing farther afield until I I found sea kayaking probably the most absorbing. When I was um, leaving college, I took a little trip from the north coast of Cornwall, where I spent a, a weekend surfing with my friends, and took a sea kayak and did a solo trip round to Brighton along the south coast. And that really affected the way I looked at paddling. Felt so free uh, to be able to make my own decisions and watch the weather, and I thought it, I learned an awful lot. So the next year, we went up to Scotland, a small group of us, to do some paddling around the island of Skye, um, ended up paddling across the out to the Outer Hebrides and running into another group of sea kayakers. In those days, we didn't run into sea kayakers very often, um, so 1976. It was a, a few people that I knew. One, Ian Matheson, who'd been very influential teaching me how to read charts and how to um, work things out from charts and tidal stream atlases and tide tables. Also, Colin Mortlock who'd recently paddled in the previous year from the Arctic Circle up to the North Cape of Norway, the North Cap Expedition. That was an expedition that uh, was very well publicised and quite well known, even nowadays, I think. We took a little side trip and drank tea in the hotel in Loch Maddy until it was uh, getting quite late and Colin said, well, we've got to go and find somewhere to camp, so um, we should be getting going. Where are you camping? And uh, Dave said, oh, we're, um, we've got our tent on Sky, so we better get going back. So we paddled back in the dark. But that trip made me start thinking about all the wildlife. We'd seen whales, we'd seen a lot of seals and seabirds, and I thought, well, Colin's trip to Norway sounded really fantastic. It'd be great to go and do something like that. So when we got back to the south coast, I opened an atlas up and had a look at the coast of Norway, and there in the inset and the corner was a map of Iceland. And I thought, I wonder if you could go around there. And it looked pretty varied coastline with smooth lines around the south and jagged lines around the northwest and on the east. So possibly fjords, then sand beaches on the south. The following year, went with a friend on the ferry across to the east coast of Iceland and we kayaked around Iceland. Coming back from that, the following year, we cut the kayaks in half, flew out to Newfoundland to paddle some of the Newfoundland coast. There I started seeing pictures of big jagged headlands and spiky mountains and snow. And uh, I kept on saying, well, where's that picture? Labrador. Where's that picture? Labrador. 
So I thought, well, maybe Labrador would be a great place to go. Yeah, it's sending you a message. Um, 1980, I was paddling in the Faroe Islands with a group with big tide races. Um, you get 10 knot tides and 12 knot tides in places. And with Atlantic swell and wind, you get some big rapids and very dramatic scenery. And then the following year, I air freighted my kayak out to Iqaluit in Baffin Island and uh, got ready to take a plane myself, except there was a bomb scare and put us on a different plane. Got out to New York on the way out to Canada and uh, my luggage wasn't on the plane. So by the time I'd finished filling in my forms and gone to the a different airline to, to leave, my flight had left. From there it's kind of a difficult thing. You try to get on standby and went to the other, to LaGuardia Airport and I couldn't get the place on the plane in the end. So I slept the night in the airport and woke up next morning to quite a commotion going on to discover that the air traffic controllers had gone on strike <laughs> and there were no flights expected and eventually I got a refund for my ticket and still in New York, no gear, just the, the bag that I had as a carry-on. So I cashed in my ticket and someone on the plane had said, you know, I've got a, got a vehicle here if anyone wants to chip in and contribute, I'll drive up to Montreal. So then we all piled into this van and drove up towards Montreal, got to the border. First thing was, your visa is out of date. And I had a visa for one day just for changing flights, <laughs> but not a visa for staying in the United States for more than a day. And I was in the wrong day. Where is your baggage? And who are you? I don't have money because I don't really need it because I'm just going in a kayak and I've got all my food air freighted up to Iqaluit. So three quarters of an hour later, they eventually let me go and I joined the others in the van and we went up to Montreal. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, this isn't a very good start to a trip. He must have figured who could be making this up. <laughs> <laughs> you have a bomb scare, you have the, the air traffic controllers... Uh... Um, go on strike. You're in a strange van with people you don't know, heading up to a place where your bags may or your kit may or may not be. <laughs> well, my bags, they said they would um, redirect them to Ikaluit as soon as they arrived. So that would be after the air traffic controllers strike and got a standby flight out to Ikaluit, where I waited for two weeks before my kayak and gear arrived by which time I was getting a little bit anxious about whether to leave or not to be so against me that I thought well it can't bode well for my trip really. I'd planned the trip to go into a, a little window between the ice breaking up mid-July and having enough time for it to clear and storms starting at the beginning of September, late August beginning of September. And I thought well I should be able to leave in August paddle down and across Hudson Strait to northern Labrador and on down the coast of Labrador to see the Labrador coast. It wasn't a big stretch to do that in that little slot, providing I could leave on time. But the weather that's really stable through August breaks up at the end of August and beginning of September and the daylight hours, which are almost 24 hours of daylight in the summer, uh, start diminishing very, very rapidly, turning into the winter when it's dark most of the time. So I was losing daylight every day I was waiting, and 
I was getting closer to unstable weather conditions. So a little torment for me. Yeah. So why did you choose the route that you chose? I mean, of all the places in the world and of all the, all the routes, how did you choose your specific route and how did you research that route? Well, I wanted to see Labrador and the northern part of Labrador in particular, which is where the Torngat Mountains, some dramatic scenery. And at the northern end of that are the Button Islands and Kilinek and the entrance of the Hudson Strait, which is very tidal. And I liked tides and tide races. And I thought that the channels around the north of the Button Islands and Kilinek and the McClellan Strait, there's a series of little channels and tides run up to 10 knots through the McClellan Strait and seven knots around by the Button Islands and through Gray Strait, these little gaps. And it's all the water that's running through from the east coming in towards Hudson Bay and filling Hudson Bay and then coming back out again. So it's quite a, a strong tidal exchange. So that was some draw for me just for seeing that dramatic water. My original plan was not to go by myself. I wasn't um, going to do a solo trip. I was going to go with, with a friend or a couple of friends. Um, but as the planning went on, people couldn't make the time or weren't comfortable with the the idea and uh, I thought well I could go by myself and if I went by myself what would I do we would go up to the north northernmost village in Labrador which is Nain and then set off from there and carry food enough to take us up to the northern tip of Labrador and back maybe make a couple of food drops on the way because it's uninhabited territory and the last village to be relocated by the Canadian government was Kilinek in the north. Other villages that had been along that stretch north of Nain were relocated by the Canadian government in earlier years, since the 1950s. So it was completely um, abandoned um, territory up there. So we had to be self-sufficient, but it's a little bit shorter, about 50 miles. If I left Trimikaluit and paddled south, instead of going north from Nain and returning to Nain and seeing the same coast twice. So it was more attractive to go from the north. And as I started researching more and more and realised, you know, what the challenges were and what the coastline was like, um, it became more and more attractive. There's a 40-foot tidal range in Frobisher Bay, which is, uh, means the tide goes out a couple of kilometres out from Ikaluit when the tide goes out. And that's challenging for uh, landing and launching. If you want to land somewhere for camping, you have to find somewhere that's fairly steep. Otherwise, you've got an incredibly long walk to get to the water in the morning, <laughs> potentially. So it had some interest to me, a lot of different aspects of it. It also had been occupied by Inuit for a long, long time and people before Inuit. So there would be remains to be seen, you know, of tent circles and encampments previous villages and things like that that would also make it interesting to explore. So a lot of reasons why it was uh, an interesting place to go. How did your planning process changed or change when it went from a, uh, a group trip to a solo trip? Well, going solo meant I made the final decision to go from Iqaluit rather than setting off from Nain. So that was the major decision that I made when I decided to go solo. And going solo meant that I had to carry everything that I needed, so I had to be very careful about what I carried to make sure that I had everything um, sort of tied as tightly as possible. 
I knew that I wouldn't be able to get weather forecasts, so I did take a barometer with me. If I could have got radio contact with anybody, I would have needed a radio, and it wasn't anything that I could really carry conveniently in my kayak at that time that would have made the distance. Because there's no no reason or no no one to contact, right? <laughs> no one to contact, but also no radio on the market that was kind of kayak friendly, you know, with battery power to be able to do anything. So from leaving Carlowit, I would be on my own until I reached Maine. And if I didn't reach there, after a, a couple of weeks of being overdue, then they might send out a search, but they would have no idea where to go. Really, I'd be setting off knowing that I'd had to be self-sufficient to get myself back to where I started um, without help from outside. So what was your navigation strategy along the way? Well, I had charts and I had some topographical maps. Those I, I used, I had a compass. The main navigation strategies are working the tides to your favor. <laughs> so it set off and go with the tide until it ran out and get as much distance as possible with a with the help of the tide, especially in Frobisher Bay, where the tides can run through between the islands at very, very fast speeds. And I would get quite a significant amount of help from the tide if, if they were with me, or I'd have to fight it. I like to be as efficient as possible with my paddling, and that includes trying to work the tides and the eddies to my advantage. I don't know if you know the, the landscape there, but Baffin Island is a big island that sort of stretches. It's a, if you go to east, it's um, Greenland, but you know, it's the Canadian eastern side of that gulf between Greenland on one side, Baffin Island on the other. Mm -hmm. And then Labrador lies to the south of it. And between the two, there are some islands. There's the Lower Savage Islands and then Resolution Island that stick out a little bit into the Hudson Strait. And the Hudson Strait runs through between Hudson Bay, a big body of water, and the waters to the east of Labrador and Denmark. I think it's the Denmark Strait there. The uh, point of Labrador, Labrador sort of sticks north like a, a spike, uh, coming to a, a narrow point at the tip, with a group of islands off the end of that. So it's about a 40-mile gap between Resolution Island and the Button Islands, crossing the, the Hudson Strait. And the water runs backwards and forwards through that gap from east to west and west to east, getting up to about seven knots at spring tides. So it's a challenging little area. So the navigation strategy for crossing Hudson Strait was to draw a straight line from Resolution Island to the Button Islands. And that would be my uh, compass line, more or less. Then to try and figure out what the tides are doing. There's very little tidal information. So on the basis that you don't know what the tides are, but they go both ways. My, my strategy was to say, well, if I assume that they're about equal, going one way to go in the other. So if I spent two tidal cycles paddling across, in other words, from high tide to low tide and back to high tide again, I would have about equal amount of drift to the east as to the west. All right. So it's a, a big assumption because they might not be the same in different parts of the strait and might not be equal anyway. So there is going to be an error. I'm not going to go paddling across on that compass line and hit the islands. 
So I'd aim off. And aiming off means I'd have a de- deliberate error to one side. And I erred to the east of Labrador. So I'd be pointing a little bit more towards Greenland than towards the west. That means that if at the end of the day I arrived in fog, and that area has a fog record of about one day in two through the summer, if I ended up in fog, then I would know that land lay on my right-hand side to the west. That's important because otherwise I could easily paddle off towards Greenland, thinking that land was over there. That's a little longer trip. (laughs) Slightly longer. (laughs) Or if I went the other way, (laughs) made the mistake the other side. Ungava Bay is about the size of Wales. Okay. So that's a long way too. (laughs) So, So my strategy was aiming off. And at the end of the day, I wanted to be to the east of the northern tip of Labrador. Then I would come with the tide onto the Button Islands or onto the coast of Labrador, depending on how far I'd got. So any error would be either a bigger distance or a shorter distance to paddle at the end of the day with the tide. So it was a simple enough strategy. question is, did, did it work? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of... It, I think it would have worked, except sitting on the island, um, on Resolution Island, I, I spent a day there waiting for the, for the weather and to look as if it was um, stable. And we'd had, I'd had um, some time with overcast skies and not really being able to see what was going on, any weather systems or anything like that that I could read from looking at the, the sky. And uh, my barometer looked fairly stable. So I assumed that if it was stable, it probably wouldn't be windy. No, that's not really a good assumption. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was foggy. I had a day of fog and I got out my watercolour paintings and I was painting pictures of wildflowers that I found just to calm myself and think, well, I don't have to cross the Hudson Strait. I can turn around and go back and it would be a really good trip. Or if I feel right about it, then I'll go. And with the barometer looking stable, still thick fog, I decided that I would go. So I left. I'd lost sight of land within a few minutes and uh, headed south across the Hudson Strait. So then what? It's on the rising tide, on the flood tide, and that would carry me west to begin with. There's a, a stretch of marked on the charts of overfalls or tide races to the south of Resolution Island that stretch about 15 miles from the coast off into the into the strait. And I wanted to avoid that area of turbulence so by going towards the west, I would do that. So the tide would have carried me to the west to start with, and then for the full ebb going towards the east, and then it would change, and I would start being taken back sideways again to, to line up with my um, offset target. But it got windy, strong wind, you know, force five, force six, white caps everywhere got colder and and wetter. So with the, the wind coming out of the west, blowing up a, a lot of breakers, when the waves were breaking, they were hitting the kayak from the side and, and jolting it sideways, carrying it sideways. So I'd brace, get carried sideways a little bit, and then continue paddling. And then another one would come in from the side and break. And each time a wave hit, the water would force up my sleeves and come down my neck. And you probably didn't have really good seals then. Didn't have the advantage of things like dry suits or dry seals. So I was getting a lot of water into the kayak and uh, 
it wasn't very easy balancing and pumping at the same time even though I had a deck mounted bilge pump to pump water out and I also had a, a small low volume pump that was a foot pump so I wanted to make sure I had backups on pretty much every system that I had so the little foot pump kept most of the water out but it was coming in faster than I was pumping it out normally so I kept on going until after about eight hours or so I decided that the wind must be taking me farther to the east than I, I was intending and at the end of the day I would have to paddle straight into it so I had a lot of debate in my head but eventually I decided that I was going to change course by a few degrees how are you feeling at this particular time I'm feeling incredibly scared and very cold yeah and uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> very very anxious because it's still foggy but it's blowing like crazy there's white caps everywhere very windy and i'm cold and i've been going for eight hours and no sign of any land in sight or anything but from there it started to get better the visibility got better in patches and then suddenly i saw the button islands i thought oh great you know i've been but they're not where i expected them and i was really worried until you know, checking the chart and checking the, the land until I realized that they were changing shape and they were just fog banks. Yeah. <laughs> then a bit later I saw the islands and they did seem to be pretty much on target and they did seem to be um, solid, weren't, weren't a little mirage of any sort. So then I got um, much more confident confidence in what was going on. But although they were down they were to the southwest of me so when I paddled southwest I should go straight onto them according to my planning because the tides at the entrance of the Hudson Strait are said to go to the southwest or set to the southwest on the flood so as the flood started and I was getting carried that way I should be carried onto the islands but that's not actually what happens there what happens is that the the water hitting the north of Labrador and the Mutton Islands gets deflected off to the northwest. And there's a big difference when the tide comes up into two knots, three knots, four knots, five knots, six knots, seven knots. And it's coming from the north. It's it's going to the northwest instead of to the southwest. And so I realized that I was getting drifted past the islands and I couldn't get closer. And despite my best efforts, I realized that I just wasn't going to get there on that tide so you can see your objective but just can't get there yes and ferry gliding didn't work because the tide was too strong to actually maintain my position against the tide and the sun was going down and i realized that soon it was going to get dark and it would be dark long before the tide was due to change so very um, sobering thought, you know, when you think, well, okay, now what? You know, the only thing I can do is to try and keep sight of the island, uh, islands and maintain my position the best I can. But here the tide on the flood is going against the wind and the wind against tide gives you steep waves. So I was surfing down uh, quite sizable breaking waves, trying to maintain my position and keep keep going as fast as I could towards the islands 
and then after dark. There's one lighthouse, little light um, stick on uh, Lace, I think it's on Lacey Island, one of the Button Islands. When I was on the top of a wave and it was flashing, I could see it. <laughs> when I was in the trough, no, no way. So that was my mainland uh, landmark. And I could see a little bit of darkness showing the islands apart from the sky. So the sky was a, a new moon, so there wasn't any, any moon in the sky. There's a few stars, a bit of cloud. But it was um, still the land seemed darker than the surroundings. So I was heading for that, trying to head for that. Incredibly cold by now and even more scared. But talking to myself, saying, well, OK, you were in bigger waves in the Faroe Islands last year. And you paddled across the channel by night. You've done these nighttime things. You enjoy paddling at night. It's not a big deal. You can control your kayak in the dark. The only thing was, you know, I'd not done it all at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, at eight and a half hours in. By reassuring myself about elements of it. Okay, you can do this. You can do this. It's not new. It's just the combination that's different. Um, it almost works, you know, talking to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So eventually the tide changed and I started making progress again and then rapidly got back to the islands in through what I, I don't know whether it was a shoal or an eddy line or what, but suddenly big breaker coming from a different direction. And I think probably what happens, I went over a shoal and, and uh, the waves were wrapping around it, but it completely unsettled me and ended up in some stiller water without the wave action and the the, uh, the water was just fizzing with phosphorescence, bioluminescence, just little bright sparks of light everywhere. It was just a magical, unexpected scenario to be so scared suddenly into water that's just brilliant with little sparks of light. Yeah, what a contrast. And then I headed for the islands. I was getting closer and closer and closer to the cliffs, but I couldn't get into the gap between the islands. The tide was running out now so fast that I, I couldn't match it. So I got swept past the islands and made it into the eddy behind. But there was no real sheltered landing along there that I knew of. I'd researched all the nice landings on the inside, um, but I had no idea what it was like on the outside. And the chart didn't really give any indication. It's dark, so I can't see the cliffs. I can see the white of the breakers coming up against them and just sort of spraying up into the air. And as I came around the coast more, I saw what looked like a shelving, gently shelving beach. And as I got closer, I, it detached itself and I realized it was another island. And then a little bit farther around, I came across what I thought was a surf beach. I could hear the, the breakers tumbling rather than, rather than crashing up against something and rebounding. So I thought that probably is a beach. I carried on a little farther and it seemed like it was a beach from where I sat. I was very cold and knew that I had to get ashore fairly soon because I was landing. I thought, well, okay, I'm fairly sure by the way the waves sound as if they're breaking that it's a beach. So I went in fairly gingerly, suddenly got picked up by a wave Hurtled down, the wave broke. I ended up crunching up a ledge of rock. 
realizing that it was rock, not a beach, that these waves were breaking on. I leapt out of the boat and couldn't stand up because the surface was just covered in this slippery, what I found out later was just a thin seaweed layer of um, fine growth that grows through the season. And it was just like ice to stand on. A moment later, I got hit by the, the backwash and swept back down into the sea. The next wave broke over the top of me and I was clinging onto the kayak and clinging onto my paddle. And I didn't know which way was up and which way was down in the dark. I trundled up the rocks and then swept back down again. And I couldn't get a grip on the rock. One of the most um, frustrating little moments in my life, I think, yeah. to think, well, okay, I've had all that distance and I'm here and this is land. I'm within inches of getting onto it, but I, but I can't make that last few feet. It's um, just, just uh, gutting. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you make it to land? I got my foot in a crack in the rock. It's like a little split and I jammed my heel down and the wave drained and then I just clawed my way up that crack and the ledges were in steps so there's this wall of about four feet in front of me and I got that and I was holding on to that as the next wave hit and it came trundling up and it pretty much just over flowed the top of that ledge and the kayak ramming up against the rock and I tried to climb onto it and couldn't and then I tried again and couldn't and then I tried and rolled onto the top and I managed to drag the kayak up the next wave that came and uh, then just crawled up the rock with the kayak behind me until I was clear of the waves and at that point I couldn't stand up I was so cold and shivery that I realized that I must be getting hypothermic and I grabbed my paddle and put it beside the kayak and tried to undo the hatches on the kayak to get some food out and to get my warm clothing out. And I couldn't feel the hatch lids <laughs> with my fingers. And sort of trying to punch them and trying to claw them to try to open them. Eventually got the hatches open, pulled stuff out until I found uh, some food and my land waterproofs and put those on over the top of what I was wearing, pulled out my sleeping bag, and I thought, well, I've just got to get into the sleeping bag to try and get warm. So I just slid in like that with all my wet gear on, and my waterproofs over the top of that, and and then into the sleeping bag and huddled there. I don't know how long I huddled there. It wasn't getting much warmer. I didn't feel as if it was getting much warmer. But then I thought, well, if the tide comes in, It'll wash me away, so I've got to find somewhere as high as possible. So I started dragging everything up to the highest point I could find. Not really sensible to the fact that the tide was actually falling, not rising. <laughs> okay. In the morning when I woke up, I was feeling very sore. I had bruises on my hips and my elbows and my knees from bouncing on the rocks. And I realized that I'd torn the callus from the base of my thumb, holding onto the toggle of the kayak in the dark I'd, um, and I had no feeling in my fingers and the fingertips the first joint a little beyond that just white and waxy and no feeling at all and I couldn't warm them up so I'd got a little bit of frostbite from presumably being hypothermic in the conditions and 
So I took stock of what was my situation. No one knew where I was. I was 300 miles from the nearest village, and that was the one that I just left, and 350 miles or so from the next one on down the coast, which is where I was going. So I didn't really have any alternative but to continue. I also discovered that the bag that I kept on deck, strapped to the front deck, that carried my first aid kit, and my stove, and uh, spare charts, and cutlery, and fishing tackle, was missing. And it obviously got torn off in the landing during the, the night, and uh, without it I would have to cook on driftwood fires. So damp there with the fog. So here you are, 300 miles from anywhere, clinging to a rock without much of your critical gear. So where does it go from there? Well, I set off down through the islands. My hands really hurt. I went through the gap where gaps that I, the little channels in the Button Islands that I, I would have landed in, the nice landing places. Got to the southern, southern end of the islands and had about three or four days of gales and just churning white caps everywhere and I was looking across the Grey Strait to the northern tip of Labrador to Killinick Island and my next plan was to go across Grey Strait through the McClellan Strait to the east coast of Labrador and on down the Labrador coast. McClellan Strait was somewhere that I really wanted to see. I'd read a lot about it in my research and it goes at 10 miles an, 10 miles an hour, 10 knots during spring tides and with some whirlpools and it's a, a turbulent channel. So I had been looking forward to being there, to seeing it and experiencing it. Um, it should have been a, a fast 14 or 15 mile run straight through that strait with the tide. So I waited until the wind died down, set off across Grey Strait, only to find the wind suddenly back, blowing like crazy in no time. And uh, having had the trauma of crossing Hudson Strait, the wind blowing up right then really scared me. And I made it across so another tidal bit of water, uh, the Great Strait, to the northern coast of Kilineck Island. And the weather being so strong, the wind being so strong, I decided that I would walk across the island and see anything that I could um, of the abandoned Inuit village of uh, Port Burwell, another village that I'd read a lot about and wanted to see. I thought, well, it's an opportunity while the wind's blowing to go and have a look, see what's there. It wasn't as easy as all that hiking. I think if I'd had to walk out from Labrador, it would have taken me years. So I made it about half the distance and camped and then hiked back. <laughs> so I didn't get there. When the weather finally died down, the winds looked favourable. I set off to get to the top of the tide to go through McLennan Strait, came round past towards Port Burwell, thinking I would see it from the water, if not from on land, and uh, ran into a small yellow boat and a little service boat coming around the corner and heading towards the beach by the village. Uh, it's an uninhabited village, so I didn't expect to find anybody there. And it turns out that this little boat landed on the beach and moments later, I pulled up alongside it. 
The men jumped out of the boat and turned their backs on me and walked up the beach <laughs> without a glance at me. And that's when I realised that I died going across the Hudson Street. <laughs> and I thought, well, come on, excuse me, excuse me, hello. <laughs> yeah. And I ran after them and uh, they sort of turned and looked quizzical. And it transpires that there was a, an oil tanker just offshore um, in the strait, out of sight. It was um, linked up to their oil tanks on the, in the village to or their fuel tanks. There were three French Canadians who had set up a weather station for the summer to study the weather at the entrance of the Hudson Strait. They'd been dropped off by the Coast Guard vessel and they were going to be picked up again by the Coast Guard vessel when the Coast Guard left in a couple of weeks. And uh, they'd run out of fuel. So this oil tanker, which had been servicing villages in Hudson Bay through the summer, was on its way south out of the area for the winter. And uh, they'd been called on to drop off some supplies. So they were stopping to connect their pipes. They'd invited the men on board for a meal. Two of the three went onto the ship for the meal. The other one stayed on land. They were just returning to disconnect the pipes and leave. So they, the pe people on board the, from land thought that I was from the boat. They didn't expect to see anybody else there. <laughs> but why did they choose to ignore you? just because they were talking amongst themselves, I guess. Huh. They just didn't pay me attention because they didn't think I was anything out of the ordinary. <laughs> and they thought I was just the, the guy from there. Okay. Or from there. <laughs> okay. So half an hour later, I was on board Eastern Shell, heading out through the Grey Strait and down the coast of Labrador, my fingers feeling as if they were burning off my, I don't know, the circulation really really painful and uh, on my way to Nova Scotia some four days later I arrived in Nova Scotia and spent the, spent the rest of the the year in Newfoundland before heading back home okay so that was kind of um, out of the frying pan at the last moment <laughs> yeah. yeah I thought um, everything up until that moment seemed really really challenging right up until the moment that I got on board that boat <laughs> So at that point, the trip is done. You went back a number of years later, right, to finish that trip off? That's true. It was one of those um, unfinished goals. And I'd always wanted to see Labrador. And I'd seen Baffin Island instead, a bit of it. I didn't see any of the Labrador coast that I'd wanted to see. So following on from that trip, I'd spent probably about three years before the circulation in my fingers was back to anything like what it had been. I got ligament damage in the in the knuckles, so it made it difficult for me to to do rock climbing anymore and things like that. But sort of recovered my uh, circulation enough to to paddle in winter without having problems with my hands. So the cold wasn't a problem. But circumstances, I ended up now living in Seattle, and my girlfriend at the time said, "You know, you're always talking about this trip and how you would like to finish it. You're never going to be able to do it if you don't plan it and go ahead and do it." So. We did just that. The two of us went. So we did some research and found we could fly to a little village called Kujuak in Ungava Bay. So we flew into Ungava Bay and uh, set off from there, paddled up to the northern tip of Labrador, coming around into McClellan Strait to where it would actually been before, which was a very um, moving moment for me. Yeah. 
And then we continued on down the coast to reach Nain and complete the trip that I'd um, started some years before. But that was a very satisfying moment to, to actually achieve that. And Kristen is now my wife. Congratulations. Thank you. How many years later was that? That was in 2012. Okay. So it was quite a few years later after, you know, 1981. <laughs> okay. So been a, a little, little wait there. Uh, aside from being with Kristen, how was that trip different? I think one of the things that changed most was that um, that whole area of northern Labrador was uninhabited from 1979, when Kilinek was, um, the people of the Kilinek were relocated by the government. Uh, then it was totally uninhabited until about a year or two after we paddled it. Um, the Torngat National Park opened, and now you have to get permits and things to go up into that northern area. They've started to resettle one or two of the Inuit villages. So it's a big shift in how the Canadian government has been giving back a little bit of what they took away from the Inuit in terms of land and resources and control of their land. So it's a very moving um, story of the Inuit and how they were manipulated by the government and the church in Labrador. You can read a bit, read a bit about it in On Polar Tides, one of my books, but it's... Um, they suffered a lot, and this is a little bit of giving back some of what, what was lost. not going to be the same anymore. It's not an in, uninhabited area. It'll have different gems. It'll have people there. So you mentioned on polar tides. So uh, you chronicle both the 1981 trip as well as the uh, return 2012 trip in that book? No, it's a little bit. There's one chapter really on the trip that I've been describing in this podcast, in the book, but it's, um, it's primarily about the, the later trip. All right. And about Labrador and Ungava. Well, I will make and, sure uh, I put a link to, uh, to On Polar Tides in the show notes so folks can check that book out as well. Thank you. But the big difference, I think, for me was that in the time between my first going out there, when I guess the land was a little more populated, even though there weren't very many people, and today, sometime after my trip, the number of polar bears in that area has increased. It's partly because they're no longer hunted. Um, but when I first went down, I didn't see a single polar bear. When I went with Kristin, we had eye-to-eye -eye contact with 16. One of them was sniffing the back of Kristin's deck when she was sitting in the kayak. The polar bear population, we used to go down to hunt uh, the harp seals on the ice off, off Newfoundland, and they would make their way back up again afterwards. This is um, when they were pupping, in the pupping season. And they'd walk their way back north, and they'd hunt through the summer in the ice edge. The ice has been melting early, so they've been going down, but then they couldn't get back on the ice, so they swim ashore. So there are increasing numbers of polar bears on the Labrador coast, mostly making their way slowly north, swimming across the fjords, walking across headlands. We just kept on running into polar bears. Nowadays, there are more polar bears there than when we were there, and they're hungry. And they are eating meat if they can find it. And we are meat. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic that has changed over the years. Yes. So I didn't really expect to see polar bears, or if I thought we'd see them, maybe one or two. But not as many as we saw. They became a really major force. And you'd think something as big as a polar bear, it's about the size of a Volkswagen, 
it's white, and the landscape is often dark rock. You'd think you'd be able to see something the size of a Volkswagen, a white one, on a dark rock. But no, it looks like a quartz vein, or it looks like a, a bleached log thrown up, or it looks like a rock. And swimming, you see pieces of ice floating around everywhere, and they're all sort of drifting with the wind, except for one piece which is going the other way. Huh. <laughs> um, you see something that looks like a, a duck, but it doesn't fly away like the rest of them. A master of disguise. We ended up paddling directly towards, and <laughs> it's just uh, incredible how difficult they are to see sometimes. Now, did you take any any different precautions on that trip? Or did you didn't even did you even expect to see polar bears or? Well, kind of more the second time. The first time, the locals said you want to be wary because the hunters have seen a polar bear on the north side of Frobisher Bay, you know, about 50, 60 miles farther down. You know, there's just that sort of thing. You know, and this was when I was in um, Ikalawit waiting to leave. But even then, I didn't think it was very likely I would see one. And they weren't sort of telling me, oh, you're going to be bumping into polar bears every day. Second time round, Kristin was calling people to say, okay, Kujuak, um, can we buy this kind of fuel for our stove there? Or this kind? You know, trying to find information about, you know, the, the, the little things that you need to know. You can't fly in with, with uh, fuel for your stove, so you need to buy something that's available. And uh, she'd also say, oh, by the way, what about polar bears? Will we see polar bears? You'll see polar bears. It's <laughs> always the answer. You'll see polar bears. Yes, you'll see polar bears. So when we got out there, we met a woman who Christian had been talking to in Kujuak. You know, she asked us about our trip and everything and was happy to meet us. And she came back with her friend and her friend's husband or partner. After dark, when we were in the tent, you know, we were just sort of camping by the river, getting ready to, to leave early next morning. And uh, suddenly this car arrives and shines its headlights at the tent. And we got out, a little bit scared, wondering what's going on. And uh, there aren't very many cars there because there's only eight miles of road and it's not connected to anywhere. So we were a little bit apprehensive about what was going on. And they said, well, we were a little bit worried about you leaving without guns. So we want to lend you this rifle. So there we were, crouched down by the open doorway of the car while this man was showing us how to operate the rifle and giving us ammunition. Um, very covert sort of situation. And we said, well, how do we get it back to you? Because we're not coming back this way. He said, oh, well, you, you're going back through Montreal. I'll give you an address and you can drop it off there when you're on your way home. And uh, we'll pick it up from there. So that's how we got into gun running. <laughs> <laughs> so we did that. So we had a firearm. But then the next problem was, how do you carry it? We had didn't have a dry bag long enough to hold a rifle. It had to go inside the kayak. Couldn't really have it in the getting wet. So it had to go into the hatch and it couldn't go in the front hatch because it would affect the compass. So it had to go in the back hatch. And it had to be the first thing in there. And we'd planned our um, food and everything quite carefully so everything would fit in the kayaks. But with the rifle in there and a couple of extra little bits we bought in Kujuak, something had to go on the back deck. Actually, it goes on, and then the spare paddle goes on the top, and then a bag that's strapped on, 
uh, that wouldn't normally be there. So it's just tied on with rope. So to get a rifle out when you needed it, if you needed it during the day, was rather impractical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a real speedy affair. Um, so when we met our, I think it was our third polar bear, I just landed on a, a rock for a pee and this polar bear came over the top. I called out to Kristen to, to get out on the water as quickly as she could. And she was pushing like crazy, but she couldn't because the tide had dropped. This is a very big tidal range in Ungava Bay of more than 40 feet. So when it goes out, it's going out, it's dropping really fast. And so she was grounded. So I hopped in my kayak and I heard this little voice saying, Nigel, I'm stuck. Should I get out of my kayak? And at that moment, the polar bear was probably at about 30 feet away. And I didn't really know what to answer. So I just got out of my kayak and it stopped and wanted to sniff at hers while she was sitting in it. And this is where I start thinking, well, okay, rifle is there. And I sort of say, just wait a minute there. I'm going to get my rifle out. <laughs> start pulling gear from my kayak. No. <laughs> but you made it. That that occasion, our original backup, before we were offered guns, we were going to take flares, which we got from a local pilot in Kujuak. And we would frighten polar bears away with the flares. So on that occasion, I thought, well, okay, I'll get the flares out. I got the flare gun out of my day hatch. And of course, it's in a little Ziploc bag. You think, well, the first thing you have to do is to read the instructions. So look at the instructions and they're in Spanish and they're in Chinese and they're in Japanese. So <laughs> open it up and think, well, can't be all that difficult to operate. Open it up and one of these must go in there somehow. So load it and aim it at the polar bear and then think, nope, that's not a good idea. If you're aiming at something that's eight feet away and you hit it, it's not going to be very happy. <laughs> and uh, so I fired past the bear and it just startled it. But instead of but you think you get, you get this great big bang and this whoosh of red fire going off into the into the sky. It just went poof. <laughs> <And> this little, <laughs> little almost not even glowing thing just sort of shot across the rock. But it was enough to startle the bear a few feet away. And Christine got out of her kayak, so we were both standing there. And uh, the bear came straight back and started sniffing the kayak again looking at us a little bit higher than we are so we're looking up at it and it's huge yeah and i'm trying to get my uh, flare gun open and another cartridge in ready to to fire when i hear this little voice beside me saying bear be gone <laughs> and i nearly burst out laughing i think bear be gone <laughs> and it's like out of a fairy tale it does not go away or something like that but bear be gone and and she said it again, and just sternly, as if she was, you know, telling a dog to sit. And eventually the bear sort of moved around a bit, and I fired off another flare, and Christine kept on telling the bear to go away. And eventually it did, and wandered away, and I think maybe 30 feet, 40 feet. And I'm thinking, if it goes much farther, I'm going to be, I'm going to move, I'm going to hop in my kayak and get out on the water. And then it turned around and started coming back, and I turned and realized that Christian had already left. <laughs> she was already in her kayak. <laughs> and it has to be about the fastest I've ever hopped into my kayak and launched. Yeah. And we've paddled around the island. We were in, in a little group of small rocky islands and I wanted to get out onto open water. 
because the channels were rather narrow. And the bear followed us around, it just kept pace with us all the way around to the other end of the island. Until when we were at a safe distance, I decided I was going to try and take a, a photograph looking back at uh, this bear. And then it walked down to the water and sniffed the water and then it started swimming after us. So polar bears can swim at six knots. So you don't really want to hang around. You want to be going as fast as you can. Yeah. Even if you can't make six knots, if you're going fast, they'll probably get bored and think it's not worth the effort. We hope. <laughs> so that was bear number three. We had sort of 16 eye-to-eye experiences with polar bears and a lot of polar bears that were, that's probably a polar bear there, so we don't want to go any closer. But I'm not going to go up there and poke it to see if it is. So a lot of bears. So you've got quite a few books out, and uh, I know that, uh, as you mentioned earlier, On Polar Tides uh, chronicles this trip, so I'll uh, I'll leave the rest of the trip to our listeners' imagination and uh, encourage them to go check out On Polar Tides. Uh, tell us about some of the other books. Well, one of my most recent ones, the one before Kayak Across France, is called Heart of Toba, and that's about um, the largest caldera lake in the world, Lake Toba. One um, very big supervolcano that blew up some 74,000 years ago and left a hole in the ground, which is partly filled by a lake 60 miles long with an island in it. And it's in a fairly uh, recently known area of Indonesia on the island of Sumatra. It's a beautiful lake and it's um, inhabited by the Batak people. And the object of the trip out there was to study Batak houses that they design and their way of life, their fishing in their dugout canoes, things like that. And it was a, an Indonesian trip, you know, Indonesian expedition, and with connections to the National Geographic Indonesia. Not a terribly long trip, but a very, very interesting one, because culturally we were... that included a, um, a house, a building that had been standing before the first white man ever saw Lake Toba. And it's an area that used to be uh, inhabited by people who ate visitors. Some of the early missionaries that went out, they got eaten. And uh, they also did head hunting. They had Sumatran tigers and elephants and all sorts of things there that are maybe not so often seen nowadays. Uh, so learning about that area and the culture was, it was a fascinating um, to do with a group of Indonesian people. And that's Heart of Toba. Other books, I do a lot of kayaking, teaching kayaking, and so learning technique. Technique is fun for its own sake, but it also gets you out of difficulties. It helps you control the kayak with a minimum amount of effort, gets you a maximum amount of effect. And I have a book called The Art of Kayaking, which is a technical book that shows everything that I've learned um, describes it in ways I hope that is easily understood how to apply the techniques also to surf conditions or to tidal conditions or to around rock gardens or out in wind. So that's uh, one of my more popular books. There are a few more. I've done about a dozen altogether over the years. Well, I have one, uh, Encounters from a Kayak, right here uh, sitting right next to me, and that's a collection of some fantastic short stories. So uh, there's lots of adventures in there and Certainly, I could talk with you all day long about the many, many adventures that you've got. What are you working on now? Well, I'm doing design work for a company called Point 65 with um, paddles and kayaks. 
But um, I'm working on a book about Iceland at the moment, the trip that I did in 1977 around Iceland. I'm very aware that Iceland has changed quite a lot since those days. So in 1977, there were 72,000 visitors to Iceland. Nowadays, about 1.2 million per year. <laughs> wow. And for a country that has had back then about 220,000 people living there, which is a smaller population than the town I grew up in and has another 100,000 nowadays, that's a huge difference to have that number of people come and visit. So I think there have been a lot of changes to Iceland since we were there. So I've written the book as Iceland was, with the things that I found interesting as we had our adventure kayaking around the coast. Everything from going off to the Westman Islands to look at the volcano that had erupted just three years earlier, to you know studying the how the landforms were geologically, you know, with the Iceland growing with the Earth's plates spreading apart splitting Iceland in two and making it grow by about five centimetres a year. So it's a very fascinating place with a Viking history and an Irish history and some some very interesting people living there. So it was, um, it's about that. And that'll be my next book out called Iceland by Kayak. Well, we will look forward to that one coming out as well. Um, you mentioned your work with Point 65, and in addition to your many trips and your coaching, you're very well known as a designer, having created uh, many, many boats under your name. How did you get your start as a designer? How did I get started as a designer? Back in the 1970s, so a lot before many people were born, <laughs> <laughs> there weren't that many kayak designs around, and I didn't really like the ones that I tried. I thought that they had things that could be done better. And I got talking with somebody else, one of the people that I paddled with, who also was interested in shaping kayaks. And we came together and did a, a design called the Vinek, which uh, was putting a lot of my ideas together with his expertise with computers, because he worked on the mainframe computer at uh, University College London as a computer programmer. So we put figures into his computer, or he put them in, and he came out with reels of numbers, which he'd point to and say, oh, there's something wrong with this little group of numbers here. And I'd look at it and think, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but when he started producing printouts of the shapes, then it made more sense to me. Okay. So we built the boat with the help of uh, people at the Ada Centre in the south of England and built a plug, built a, a kayak from it and tested it. And from that came up with a new plug and a new mould and the Vinec that finally came out is the boat that I used for, for circumnavigating Iceland and also for paddling across the Hudson Strait and that Labrador trip. It was a later kayak that I used for the Labrador trip when I went back the second time. It's called the Legend which is built by Seawood Kayaks in Canada and uh, since then I've been designing kayaks for Point 65 Sweden including the Whiskey 16, which is a boat for playing in rock gardens and surf, but with enough speed to do trips in. So it's um, fascinating sort of shaping for performance, perfect for everything. You need to tailor it. It's like which body shape is perfect for everybody. Everybody has a different body shape. Everyone has different aspirations. Everyone needs slightly different things in a kayak. And what I've done is try to 
um, distill the elements that I want in a particular boat for a particular purpose and understand why each part fits with each other part to make it do that and find it fascinating. So how can listeners reach you if they have additional questions? Well, I have a website called nigelkayaks.com and you can actually link through the contacts on there to email me with your questions. Um, so nigelkayaks.com is easy to remember because Nigel Kayaks, that's <laughs> what I do. So um, nigelkayaks.com. All right. That has links to most of the other things. It has links to my Amazon author page and has links to my other websites that that describe more about my books or my designs and things like that. So there are a number of websites linked to it, but that's really the hub. Yeah, I will make sure I put links to that in the show notes as well so folks can check that out and, and learn more about you and your designs and your books and, and what's happening in the future. Thank you. It's been wonderful learning from you and, uh, and learning about your trips, um, learning specifically about the uh, Baffin Island to Labrador trip and the adventures and misadventures. And then your. Um, I do have one final question, and that is, my, Nigel, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I could probably spend all day with suggestions because I know a lot of people who have some great tales. But I think I mentioned one man earlier, Colin Mortlock. He has done some pivotal trips, including the Nordcap expedition, which was um, one which inspired a lot of other people. He worked as a, an educator at the Charlotte Mason College, teaching people at adventure education. So it's his philosophy, but it's also what he does. He also paddled up the west coast of Alaska, um, much of the way on a solo trip. And uh, maybe his stories are not as well known as they should be. And I think he would be a really interesting person to talk to. And that Alaska trip was late 70s, correct? late 70s or early 80s, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. But the uh, Nordcap expedition was in 1975 from the uh, um, Arctic Circle up to the North Cape of Norway. All right. In kayaks that were designed specifically for that sort of trip, which was a new thing back then to design kayaks for trips like that. Well, I will, uh, I'll connect with you offline and we'll get Colin Mortlock's information and, uh, and connect with him and see if we can get him on the show and be able to tell those stories to the world. I, for one, would be really interested in hearing them. Wonderful. Well, again, Nigel, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak and to learn from you and to, to hear your stories. And again, I'll put links in the show notes to the books and to nigelkayaks.com so folks can check that out and learn more uh, about you and about the resources. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Scary times for sure as Nigel fought his way to that island. 
glad that he and Kristen had the opportunity to go back 23 years later and experience it again and really experience it quite a different way. It's also interesting how the polar bear population changed over the years. You can check out Nigel's book on polar tides as well as his other books. You'll find links to those in the show notes for this episode at www.paddlingtheblue. And big thanks again to Nigel for spending the time with us and sharing his story. Just a reminder, if you enjoy the show, when you visit paddlingtheblue.com, there's a link at the bottom right of your screen where you can send a small donation, and every little bit helps offset the cost of running and hosting the show, so we really appreciate your support. Our next show will feature Calvin Kroll sharing the beauty of a winter circumnavigation of Vancouver Island. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.